I'm going to back this thing up. I, uh, I'm going to try to stay in front of that camera, John, not mess you up. I feel like I'm, you guys are on my back. I don't like that. Uh, so I'm going to get back here with you. Uh, I was preaching at Providence one Sunday morning, and um, similar to this, and um, our kids were in our service with us quite like this morning. And, um, and if you don't know it or not, you'll figure out pretty quick I major in putting kids to sleep. I told you preaching uh, at home, I could put my cat to sleep. And I ended up baptizing him and uh, got that old cat saved. Uh, but that's the only good thing come from COVID, by the way, is my, my cat had to be my audience. And uh, so uh, the kids were in our sanctuary and uh, in the back right, I didn't know it, but a young girl named Jordan had fell asleep. And uh, they're probably watching the service because I'm going to be back preaching with them next week. And they're probably just watching to see if I'm going to preach the same sermon to them as I preach today. And uh, so anyway, she had fell asleep and I didn't know it. And something about sleeping came up in my sermon. And uh, so her mother said, I'm going to use this to my advantage. And she elbows Jordan. And, uh, and Jordan sits straight up. And, uh, and now the talk is, is you better not fall asleep while Tony's preaching. And he'll call you out. And uh, I'm telling you, it was, it was a defining moment in Jordan's life. Uh, Jordan now, every time we go eat with him, they say, so you're the preacher that called me out in service. And I just don't tell her any different. Uh, I just let her think that. Last week, we heard a sermon on defining moments in Peter's life. And I asked Dr. Allen, I said, Dr. Allen, look, I've been working on a sermon uh, for a long time, but really predominantly for the last two weeks on, um, on the character of Peter. And if you don't mind, I want to preach part two of defining moments of Peter's life. And Dr. Allen said, please do. And so I'm going to be in John 21. And I want to talk to you about the other side of the defining moment of Peter's life. He preached the first side is when I think when the, the transition began to turn in Peter's life. It's when, when I believe he began to go down a road that I would call a road of failure. And, um, and I think really Peter began to go down a long, a long road here. And I think it started in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, now, guys, I'm telling you, when the storm hits, it's too late to pray. When the storm hits, it's too late to pray. Prayer for a lot of us is like a spare tire. We don't need it until we need it. Prayer is one of those, and, I, and, and although we don't say it with our mouth, we don't put the bumper sticker on our trucks and cars, it's on our hearts. Prayer is one of those things that, uh, that, that here's kind of the attitude we take. When you try everything else, try praying. We put bumper stickers, and, and although Christians now we've become uh, theologically sound, that that's probably not good theology, but how many of us still have some of that on our hearts? You know, we'll turn to our bank accounts, our checkbooks, our savings accounts, our 401ks, our Social Security. When all of that fails, for some reason we hit our knees. And God gave me a sermon one time, and uh, it was for Tony personally, not for any church out there. Uh, it was for me personally, and here was the sermon that God began to drill in my heart. It wasn't good. How many of us has had God speak to us, and it's not fun, it's not good? Sometimes God said this, Tony, anything that puts you on your knees is good, brother. I said, my goodness. Well, we don't like to be on our knees, but it's good places for a Christian to be on his knees. And, uh, so, and some things that it taught me is it taught me, number one, we win the battle on our knees, but we fight the battle on our feet. We win the battle on our knees, but we fight the battle on our feet. Obedience happens as our feet begins to move, but we win it on our knees. I'm a firm believer that the reason these two defining moments in Peter's life is because Peter failed to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane that Dr. Allen did so well with us last week. Um, what you'll learn in just a moment, and uh, you've got a handout, but guys, you can set this to the side for a moment because we're going to take a little journey before we get there. Um, I, when, when I preach, I, I, here's what I try to do. Uh, three things I try to do when I preach. Number one, read the text. What's in the text? Read the text. Number two, let the text read us. Read the text, let the text read me. And then number three, I've got to respond to what the text read. This is letting the text read us and our response. So just for a moment, we want to just kind of read the text together. So as the defining moments in Peter's life, I'm on the other end of this thing, and I, and I really think it'll help us as Dr. Allen finishes Mark 14, 15, 16, and uh, in the book of Mark as he brings that thing to conclusion, getting ready for Jesus to start his journey to the cross in the background of what's going on in Peter's life. But now I'm not one of those preachers that, uh, that likes to beat up on Peter. 
Um, somebody asked me, Tony, why do you think Peter has so much language in the Bible? And here's what I said, because Peter is just saying what's in everybody else's heart. He's just the spokesman for the other 11. Uh, so that's what's all. So I'm not one of those that beats up on Peter, uh, but um, I, I'm telling you, um, I myself find more similarities in Tony's heart in Peter than I do in Jesus. It is more easily for me to relate to Peter than for me to relate to Jesus. And I think that's why this text means so much to me. So I'm going to be in John 21. We're going to read verse 15, 16, and 17. And then I just want to tell you a story. And then we will get to your handout. John 21, verse 15 says, And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? In my Bibles, I put a question mark above these because that's a very important part of the passage. And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, You need to feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, Well, you need to tend my sheep. You need to get back to doing what I've called you to do. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything that's in my heart. I'm going to add a little bit here, not to the word of God, but just to the, what the context of going on. I think Peter's saying, Lord, you know what's in my mind. Lord, you know what's in my heart. Lord, you know, just a few days ago, I told you that I would go with you even to death. And before you even got to death, I've already departed you. Lord, you know that my mouth, which is big and wide and always running, doesn't always match my feet. Lord, you know everything about me. You know the times I talk and shouldn't. You know when I respond too quick. And Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, then Peter, you need to feed my sheep. You need to get to work. Father, Lord, as we begin to unpack this story as a defining moment in Peter's life, Father, it would be my prayer, Lord, that, that, uh, Lord, that we take your hearers here today and we all sit around this campfire with these disciples. Father, that we would put ourselves in this context. And Father, time and time again, as I put myself at this fire, around this breakfast, God, I see a life and a heart that is very similar to Peter's at times. And Father, it is so easy as a believer to sit back and let our mouth overload our feet. And Father, we fail to realize that apart from you, we can do absolutely nothing. Father, help us not to boast too much and pray too little. Father, help us to rely on the Holy Spirit. And Father, it would be my desire in this room that, that, God, we would realize that apart from you, we can't be saved. Apart from you, we can't live saved. And apart from you, we'll never be saved. So, Father, would you do in this room for us what we can't do for ourselves? And, Father, we give you praise and glory. You're the only one that's worthy. In Christ's name, amen. In John 21, I'm going to give you a little bit of context. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. When I was uh, in my early 20s, I absolutely hated to study. And I'll never forget when God called me to preach at 19, I sat in by my bed right by myself going, God, I'm not keeping anything from you. I hate to read and I hate to study. And if I know anything about preaching, I'm going to be reading and studying for the rest of my life. And so, God, you've got to do something for me that I can't do for myself. And uh, so now, if you're not one of those real smart students sitting in here that, uh, that looks like, I'll never forget, I had Colin Dollar and Katie over at our house the other night, and we were just kind of conversating, and, uh, and Colin, there he is right in front of me. Uh, maybe he won't mind if I share this. If he does, Jenna will buy him lunch, and he'll be okay. But we, we were sitting there, and we were talking, and, uh, and uh, I was telling Colin about how I hate to read, and Colin's telling me how he loves to read, and I said, Colin, please, for the life of me, tell me that you're not one of those students walking in between classes reading a book. And Colin said, no, that's that's me. Guys, that is not me. So if you're sitting here going, Tony, I can relate to you, brother. Hey, I'm talking to you. But I want you to hear me well. You'll never learn more about Jesus outside his book. So you'd better be on your knees, Father. Just like Tony, God, give me a desire 
to read and study your word. And I'm telling you, God began to give me a desire to do that. Let me, let, let me just be real transparent with you. Here's how bad it was in my life when I started to preach. God, the love of my life is, is a fishing pole and a shotgun. That's the love of my life. And you're going to see in a moment, and you're going to learn something about Tony. He talks about his love, and he talks with his love. I talk with a shotgun real well, and I talk about it real well. So here's my prayer with God. God, you know everything about me. God, give me a love for your word and for you that's greater than a shotgun and a fishing pole. And God began to create in me a love for his word. Now, I say all of that because, guys, apart from the context of John 21, you're going to miss the, the power of this sermon. So the story's told here after the resurrection of Jesus, he appears in his resurrected body to his disciples again. Now, I think it's important we realize in his resurrected body because we talk about a faith that has no sight. But here, folks, is faith that has sight. Peter's not sitting at this supper or breakfast like he did to the one before. The one before, he's sitting there in a physical form with Jesus who's not went to the cross yet and resurrected. But he's been told about it. This Peter is now sitting at a breakfast with Jesus fully resurrected, having already conquered all of his problems. Resurrected body sitting there at breakfast, uh, fully conquering the cross. He is out on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus. And the disciples has now, they've left Jerusalem, they've gone back to Galilee fishing, and uh, the Bible says here they fished all night, but they've not caught any fish. Now this brings up the first debate of John 21. Uh, the first debate is, Tony, why have they gone back fishing? Now, some scholars will go as far as to say that Peter's gone back fishing because Peter has totally denied Jesus and he's went back to his old way of living. Now, I somewhat understand that. And I'm going to be honest with you as a preacher, boy, that would make a good sermon. However, I'm just not so sure that fits the context. Now, if you are there and you think that's why he went back fishing, I'm okay with that. It's no theological principles there that's going to change the meaning of the text. Here's why I think Peter's went back fishing. Because Mark 14 that Dr. Allen's going to get to and already has mentioned a few times. Mark 14, 28 says, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So guess what Peter knows? Peter knows Jesus when he's raised is going to Galilee. Peter knows he's already, he's already seen Jesus. We know two other times before John 21. And Peter says, hey, the resurrection must be real because I've seen him, he's alive. And I know he told me in Mark 14, 28, I'm going to Galilee before you. In Mark 16, later on, it says, now go and tell those disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you. He's going to meet you all in Galilee and you'll see him there just as he told you before he died. I'm going to Galilee, so meet me there. Luke 24 says the same thing. The Lord is risen indeed, and He has appeared to Simon. Uh, so I'm just going to take the context of this. The reason Peter's in Galilee is because he's going to see Jesus. He knows that's where Jesus is going. Now I'm just going to be honest with you. What better way to pass our time than fishing? I mean, Peter's, I just, now I'm just going to cut Peter some slack. And I know I'm disagreeing with most scholars, and I'm okay with that. I don't think Peter's being disobedient here. I think Peter's just going to Galilee because Jesus has told him, when I'm raised, I'm going to see you there, go there, and wait for me there. And Peter's going there, and, and, and Peter at heart is a fisherman. Peter's not a golfer. Uh, I remember when I went into ministry at 19, somebody told me, Tony, you better buy you some golf clubs. And I said, no, y'all better learn to shoot a shotgun. I mean, my soul. I, I, no, no golf. I don't, I don't play golf. My wife says, Tony, you need no more hobbies. Peter is in Galilee. And I think that's the most reasonable answer. But can I also add, however, this doesn't downplay the feeling that's in Peter's heart of failure. Peter's now in Galilee. And we all know as Peter's in Galilee because he's denied his Lord and, uh, and he is filled with failure in his life. Now, if I put myself in Peter's shoes, Peter is good at fishing. That's who he is. That's the way he made his living. He's now denied his Savior three times. So I'm telling you, Peter feels absolutely non-worthy to be feeding sheep and being the preacher that Jesus had once told him he would be. Upon this rock I will build my house. 
Peter is called to preach and called a pastor. And uh, I'm telling you, the failure in Peter's life at this moment, Peter's like, I'm done. There's no other place for me in ministry. There's no place for me to serve. But I know Jesus is going to Galilee and I'm going there. So this doesn't downplay the feeling of insecurity, of depression, uh, of denying the Lord. And now he's going fishing. And I'm just telling you, a fisherman's heart, Peter, Peter has been writing... Uh, uh, been going fishing all of his life. Jesus writes sermons. And I'm telling you, in Luke 5, the conversation between Jesus and Peter went like this. Jesus said, you push out a little bit, let down your nets. And I'm telling you, Peter looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, you write sermons, I fish for a living. It's the same thing here. Peter's been fishing all night and has caught no fish. Now to us, we skip over that. But when you're in a state of insecurity and depression and now you're failing at the very thing that you're good at, now what do you feel like? Work's not going good. Your job used to be your security. Now you go to your job and now it's fell apart. Some of you, your retirement was good and you come home and now it's gone. I remember when Hurricane Michael went by, a lot of my friends over in Georgia plant pine orchards and that was their retirement. Hurricane Michael come in and blowed it away, retirement gone in a blink of an eye. Now you're not even good at what you thought you were good at. And Peter has a sense of insecurity and failure and depression has settled into his heart. And now Peter's on a lake, a sea of Galilee, that he thought he was good at, and now he's not even good at that. I'm not downplaying the thought of insecurity and failure in Peter's life and heart. Time went on until just before dawn, the Bible says that there was a man standing on the shore in John 21, if you're tracking with me. And the man standing on the shore begins to say, hey guys, if you want to catch some fish, throw your nets on the starboard side of your boat. Now, any fisherman know the starboard side's the right side. And so Jesus is standing on the shore says, hey, throw your nets on the right side of the boat. And I'm sure Peter rolled his eyes at this point. But uh, guys, I'm going to be honest with you. If you study the nets that they're fishing with, more than likely they're fishing with what's called cast nets. Anybody know what a cast net is? One person. I'm doing good in this sermon. I, I'm, I'm being real relevant with you today. So they, they take a cast net, which is a round net with lead on the bottom, and they cast it. All right. Now, any fisherman uh, would know, but if not, you would just skim over this and think there's some big miracle here, and there is, but it's not in the casting of the net. Uh, because this is very, um, very relevant to their time. Uh, whenever you throw in cast nets, um, I have an offshore boat, and my friend gets on the front, and he's throwing the cast net, but the one throwing the net's not looking for the fish. Somebody sits high and away and can see the school of fish, and I tell Josh, Josh, throw your net over there. The school just went over there. So Josh throws his net over there. So the man sitting on the shore is doing what every fisherman does. And he says, hey guys, the school is on the right side of your boat. Throw your net over there. That's not the miracle. Here's the miracle. Is I don't know what a fish whistle sounds like, but I know what a dog whistle sounds like because I watch Andy Griffith. Uh, but I don't know what a fish whistle sounds like, but God uh, whistles for the fish whistle, and every fish that he wanted to be caught, 153 of them to be exact, goes to the right side of the boat. There's the miracle. Your Savior holds nature in his hand, and he can do whatever he needs to do to restore you to his mission. And he moves all of those fish to Peter's nets. Peter casts his fish, and he draws the fish in. Now John records something that no other gospel records. John says there's 153 of them. Now here comes debate number two. Men, scholars love to debate, so scholars begin to debate what in the world. Why does John record that there's 153 fish? And, uh, and I'm going to be honest with you. Man, I, I'm one of those good scholars. Let me tell you why I think there's 153 fish. Because I'm a fisherman again. And I hadn't caught anything all night. I throw my net on the right side of the boat because some, uh, I, I will refrain from my language. I'd be Fred Sanford because some dummy on the shore is telling me to throw on the right side of the boat. And I do, and I catch a bunch of fish, 153 of them as a matter of fact, and I pull them in. Let me tell you why it's recorded. Because any fisherman would say, man, I've not caught anything all night. My net's full. Let's count these, Peter, and let's see how many we got, and let's put them on Instagram. I mean, any fishermen, they know why they're going to do it. Let's, let's put this thing online. We've got to tell everybody. 
And most scholars would agree that that's probably pretty accurate. However, John does include some very secretive messages throughout his... Not secret, hidden messages would be a better word, throughout his gospel. And some scholars would agree that 153 represents the different types of species that was in the Sea of Galilee at the time. And it's talking about that the net is sufficient for Christ evangelism for all peoples around the world. And uh, I don't know. Sometimes I think we asagete instead of exegete. Isagetes put what's there that's not. Exegetes pull out what is. And, um, and I'm just going to be honest with you. I think John's clear. He's just telling us how good Jesus is. He's moved all these fish to the right side of the boat. Now, this teaches us a little bit about John and Peter. Let me, let me separate John and Peter for you. John has quick insight Peter has quick response. Now you take that through the Gospels. Peter never has quick insight. But Peter's feet will jump that quick before he even thinks about what he's doing. You ever done that before? You act before you think? We get sometimes on the other end of this thing and we say, Boy, what in the world was I thinking? I knew better than that. So John has quick insight. John don't do that often. Peter has quick response. So this is what John says. John knows scriptures and John says, hey, hey, this, this looks familiar. Uh, I better not do that. This, this looks familiar. I know in Luke chapter 5, as John's thinking, this ain't the first time Jesus has done this. In Luke 5, Jesus was teaching and he gets in the boat and he says, hey guys, would y'all push a little bit away from the shore? And the disciples push a little bit away from the shore. And Jesus says, hey, throw your net over here. And they do it and, uh, and they catch so many fish. You remember what Luke 5 says? They catch so many fish that the boats like to have sunk. And then the other boats had to come and get the fish. You know what that tells me? The way I live my life doesn't only impact me, it impacts others around me. It impacts others around me. So my life either confuses the gospel for those I come in contact with, or it clarifies the gospel for those I come in contact with. And uh, so, so John's like, hey, I remember Luke 5. I remember what Jesus did then. So, hey, Peter, in John 21, this is what he says. John says, hey, Peter, I know who that is over there on the shore. That's the Lord. And then scholars want to debate, and you may be wondering, Tony, if he's already appeared to them at least three times, why didn't they recognize it was Jesus? Let's be practical. The NLT, New Living Translation, I think, illustrates this better for us. The Bible says that whenever they saw Jesus, it was so early in the morning that they really couldn't tell who it was. I don't think Jesus is hiding himself from you. I don't think Jesus is hiding himself from his disciples. I think just practically they're at dawn and it's too early. And because of his response, John says, I know who that is. Peter, that's the Lord. Here comes quick response. Peter, you got a good boat paddle, brother. Just paddle to the shore. No, the Bible says Peter puts on a tunic, puts on a dress, and he jumps in and swims to Jesus. I don't know how your mind works. My mind goes, Peter, are you, are you nuts? Why in the world are you going to put on a dress and try to swim? And the Jews, if you were going to go and meet your master or your rabbi, you'd be fully dressed in order to meet someone you cared that deeply about. Now, guys, hear me well. Peter's not had a, an encounter with Jesus since he denied him. Peter's willing to do whatever he can to get back to the feet of Jesus. Peter jumps in and he swims and John comes and he follows later. And guys, here's the story begins to twist in verse 15. When he gets close to him, verse 15, so it says, So they had finished breakfast, and Jesus begins to conversate with Peter. You know what's intriguing to me? Jesus is sitting there, and John 21 says that Jesus has already got a fire, and he's got breakfast cooking. And then he says to Peter, Peter, go get some of the fish that you just caught and bring them over here with you. Man, I couldn't help but to think, when I was studying this passage of Scripture, what would be my response... If I would have got swimming to the shore and got there, I'd been fishing all night. Jesus already has fish in a fire and already cooked breakfast. I'd invited him fishing tomorrow. I'd invited him fishing. He's already got breakfast cooked, already got a meal planned. Why does he tell Peter to bring fish? 
Jesus is fixing to use a teaching strategy that everybody can relate to. And he uses props. And he takes that fish. And I really think he sets this fish. And I think he makes Peter lay that fish in front of him. And I think he just is quiet. And he's making Peter and those disciples look at that fish. And like, man, I don't have a clue why he told me to bring them things up here. And they're trying to figure out what in the world's going on. And they just eat breakfast. And then verse 15 says, And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus begins to teach them. And Jesus says these words, Simon Peter. Remember Dr. Allen told us that Jesus started calling Peter Simon again? He didn't change here. Some scholars would believe that the word Simon means wavering one. Peter means the rock, which is unwavering. Peter has went back to wavering. Peter began to deny him. Peter begins to let doubt and frustration settle in his heart. And now he begins to waver on some things that Peter would have never wavered on. You ever met Christians before who begins to doubt their salvation? I'm going to deal with that in a moment. And I hope it brings unshakable, unwavering faith to your life. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me first time more than these? Now, we've been in studying scriptures for long enough. You're probably well aware of the Greek language here that he uses. But the first word that Jesus uses is, Peter, do you love me more than these? And he uses a word that is um, called agape. Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me more than these? And I'm just going to interpret these because I believe that these is the fish. There's two options that it could be. Number one, uh, it could be the fish because Jesus has already brought them up there and it would have been the prop in his sermon and Jesus has already got them there with him. Uh, So Peter, do, do, do you love me more than these? Now guys, he's not talking about the fish. Peter is a fisherman. That is who he is. Peter, do you love me more than yourself? That's the gospel. Unless you, unless you deny yourself, unless you hate your own life and your family and your brothers and your sisters, Jesus says, uh, that's the only way. The Bible says, unless you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. Uh, so the question on the table is, Peter, do you love me more than you love yourself? Well, that's a question on the table, is it not? I'm telling you, that is a question on the table. Peter, do you love me more than your plans? Do you love me more than your desires? Do you love me more than your job? You mean to tell me, Jesus, that you're asking me to give this up? To come and follow you? Why on earth would a person do that? If you're lost in this room, here would be my question. If if I was a lost person sitting in here, Tony, you're telling me to give all of this up? Why on earth would I do that? And I'll answer that for you in a moment. Why would I? Wow, that doesn't even make sense. Do you love me more than these? Do you agape me? Self-sacrificial love. Peter's response is, Lord, you know I phileo you, not agape. Peter says, Lord, you know I have affection for you. Phileo is the Greek word which just means affection. It means that that I care about you like I do a friend, but I'm not going to sacrifice my life for you. Now, does Peter really mean that? I don't think so. I don't think Peter means that in his heart. But how on earth are you about to tell Jesus that you got self-sacrificial love for him when you just denied him? Jesus knows what's in his heart. Peter in his shame and in his guilt is looking at the very Son of God who's resurrected and, and you're not facing to get one over on him. Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. You know I've got affections for you. And Jesus says, then you need to do what I've called you to do. You need to feed my sheep. A second time, he says, Peter, do you love me? And we know what he says. Same thing. Jesus says, you know, I agape you. And uh, Peter responds with, Lord, I phileo you again. I have affection for you. But the third time, something changes. The third time in John 21... Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And the Bible says Peter was grieved. The question must come up, why why is he grieving? He's grieving because Jesus doesn't use agape here. Jesus questions even his affection for Jesus. 
So Jesus changes his word. Jesus says, Peter, do you phileo me? Do you even have affection for me? And it cuts Peter to his heart that the Son of God, Jesus, would question his love for him. Why? Why? Guys, you know there's people in this world that'll tell me that you love Jesus? You've got affection for him. But are you following him? Because you see, Jesus didn't ask us to love him like we do our spouse. That love won't save you. Jesus has asked us to love him with agape love. That's a love that you and I and the natural man cannot produce. The Holy Spirit produces it in us. And that's the need for regeneration. That's the need for regeneration. So Peter has a breakdown moment. And he begins to break down. And now Peter begins to, I really begin, thinks he begins to weep. And Peter says, Lord, I'm an open book before you. Uh, You know everything about me. You know that I love you. Now to your outline. We got the story. But what we see here is there's a public denial that's fixing to lead to a public restoration. There's a public denial that's fixing to lead to a public restoration. Think about this moment of what's going on around Peter. Peter is sitting at a fire with Jesus. When's the last time Peter was at a fire with Jesus? He was in the courtyard. You remember what happened in the courtyard? He denied him. So Jesus intentionally, for this first question, Peter, do you love me? Jesus takes Peter back to his failure to where he denied him the first time. And the campfire would have reminded Peter of the failure in his life there at the courtyard. So you've got one restoration for the three times of the failures that's in Peter's heart. And I think the fire would have taken him back. I think the breakfast would have taken him back to the last supper that Dr. Allen talked to us. The last time I sat around a meal together, I let my big mouth overrun my shoes. And I told Jesus, Jesus, I'll go with you anywhere. That's the last meal I had with Jesus. But now I get to have another meal and I'm sitting here going, Jesus, I really didn't do what I said I would do. Boy, have you ever been there before? So there's number two. First denial, first restoration. Second denial, second restoration. Third denial and third restoration. Three questions for three reinstatements to Peter's mission. How could that happen? So there's a public denial and there's a public restoration in front of his disciples. How could that happen? Well, guys, sitting in front of Peter is the very creator of the universe. It's the Savior of the sin in in body, physical form. The perfect one, the one who stood in Peter's place. The one who took the full wrath of God for Peter and for you and me is sitting in front of Peter. The one who Peter had to sit and watch as the Roman crucifixion unfolds. The one who had to constantly be reminded that I may not ever see this man again. And he is now sitting in front of me having fully conquered all of my sin, all of my shame, and all of my guilt. He is sitting in front of me fully restoring me. And the question must come up, what does that say for you and I? Because you and I better not forget something. Although it seems as the world around us, outside of this room, is just falling apart. I mean, sickness everywhere, COVID everywhere, nations crumbling, families crumbling. Uh, Some of your families is on the brink of crumbling, and some of your jobs is on the brink of crumbling, and, and, and we find ourselves right where Peter's at. What you and I better not miss is that creator that sat in front of Peter is sitting in front of you right now. That very creator, that very sustainer, 
Because we're on this side of the resurrection. So all of the guilt and the shame and the punishment and the failures of my life that I'm constantly battling, I do not have to battle because they were paid for when He resurrected. It's over. And Jesus is sitting there with Peter like, Hey, Peter, don't miss the grace that I just portrayed on the cross. All of your failures, all the times that you've missed me and missed the mark, Peter, don't forget about grace that is greater than your sin. It was a songwriter that wrote much about it. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse from within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. I like this part. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. All who are longing to see His face, will you this moment His grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace. Guys, this same forgiveness is offered to you and I to restore us and sit us back where we need to be. I've come to realize some of the problem is... is A lot of times, Tony don't realize how much he's in need of it. A lot of times, we sit in America and entitled to all the stuff around us. We're entitled to health care. We're entitled to to dentistry work, apart from Dr. John. We're, We're entitled to these things. We're entitled to our retirement. We go to McDonald's, and we can order something on the screen, and the the, the, the lady says back, Hey, would you like to, to, to big size that? Yeah. Just drive around and give me your money and I'll give it to you. And oftentimes we approach God that way. When I'm reminded of this question, who is Tony to think that I deserve to be called a child of God? Who am I? Who am I to think I deserve? To be called a child of God. Who who am I to think that I can prince in my Southern Baptist church and sit in a heat and air conditioning building in a padded pew? Who am I to think that I deserve this? And we're so comfortable that we can sit there and sleep singing about the matchless grace of God while others, our brothers and sisters, are just hoping they don't get caught and put their head on a platter this morning. So, man, I couldn't help but to ask myself because I can relate more to Peter than I can to Jesus. So I couldn't help but to ask myself because I was raised this way. Parents, grandparents, have you ever said this to your kids? Uh, Guys, if you had learned more from my mistakes, you might not make them. I mean, guys, let let me just encourage, uh, and, and I don't get to say this often, let me encourage you old folks. I like that. I'm not one of them yet. Your kids and grandkids need to hear more about your failures so they can see more of a sufficiency of Christ than your successes because that points to you. I learned more when my mom and dad sat me down and they said, now Tony, let me tell you where I have failed so that you don't make the same mistake I did. Now guys, you, I, I know because I've sat in your, in your seat, you'll tune a preacher out in a historical context, but you better tune in at this part. What caused Peter's failures so that I don't make them too? What can I do different in my life tomorrow so that I don't find myself failing? Here's what caused Peter's failures Number one, Peter was talking about Jesus more than he was talking with Jesus. Man, he's doing good talking about him. Tomorrow you'll tell somebody you went to grace today. But will you tell them that you met Jesus at grace today? And will you tell them what Jesus did for you? See, Peter's doing good talking about Jesus. He's not failing talking about him. Matter of fact, Luke twenty two twenty four says a dispute broke out among them as to which of them were regard was the greatest in the kingdom. They're talking good about Jesus. Luke twenty two thirty three. Peter said to him, 
Here he says again, he says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He's talking about him. Lord, here's what I'll do for you. Here's what I'll do uh, with you. Here's where I will go. Here's what I'll do. Man, he's boasting a lot about what Peter will do. He's talking a lot about him. But he's not talking much with him. Matter of fact, Cliff, and I just kind of sat back there and chuckled at how God sets up the service today. Cliff talked even to this morning about a time in the disciples' life when all they were doing was sleeping. Guys, some of you might not be sleeping physically, but how many of us are sleeping spiritually? I had a conversation with one of my best friends this past week, and he's mad at me at this moment, but he'll get over it because I'm taking him to Arkansas duck hunting Thursday. He'll get over it. And, uh, and he says, Tony, we live in a world where a lot of people talk about loving Jesus and keeping Jesus first in their family, but not many people are doing it. You better watch what you say to me because I'll, I'll question you. I said, well, well, tell me, what are you doing to keeping first in your family? Now, dads, let me ask you a question. What are you doing to keeping first in your family? What's family worship time look like? What's family prayer time look like? What's scripture memorization look like? You know, we're good at beating up on the millennial generation, and we better have one millennial amen that, because we're blasted all over the nation. But let me ask moms and grandparents a question. Who do they belong to? Whose kids are they? What's family worship time look like? Moms and dads, have you ever told your testimony to your children? I'm not talking about telling them how you can be saved. I'm asking you, have you ever told your kids how you were saved? What are you doing to keep Jesus the center of your home? All of us want to go to church where Jesus is the center of this family, right? He can't be the center of this family if He's not the center of your family. Kingdom families build kingdom churches. Kingdom churches don't build kingdom families. He's talking a lot about him. He's just not talking much with him. And he set himself up to fail. There's a few principles that comes out of this. One is on your handout. The other one's not. Principle number one that that I've devoted to my life is there's no substitute for time spent with Jesus. I, I can't substitute it. There's no substitute for time spent with Jesus. I've got to have this time for Jesus. Not only for myself, but I'm going to tell you, if Tony don't spend time with Jesus, he's going to mess it up for his wife. Man, I'm not going to be livable with. Because I know Tony. I know who Tony used to be. And he is dangerous. Anybody remember how you once was when you were lost? Were you good? Were you dangerous? I was dangerous to my family. And I've got to spend time with Jesus because Tony is dangerous. And Jesus is the only one that can save me. There's no substitute for time spent with Jesus. And then number two principle that I've learned from this is private preparation precedes public performance. Private preparation precedes public performance. Man, if I don't... If I, don't, if I don't win the battle on my knees, I'll never accomplish the battle on my feet. And I'm telling you, I'm very practical in my thinking and my preaching. So what battle am I trying to win on my knees? Let's just be humorous for a moment. I need the Holy Spirit to get that monkey inside of me and put him in the cage. I've told you I've got holy schizophrenia. Uh, There's a person inside of me who's called Tony and he is dangerous and I need the Holy Spirit to put him in the cage so that he doesn't come out and the Holy Spirit lives in me and through me. Private preparation precedes public performance. Man, I'm in desperate need of it. Two things that I've learned about Tony, just be transparent with you. I don't think this is on your handout, but it's in my notes. I'll share it with you. Quickly, I've got to hurry. Two, Two things I've learned about Tony. Number one, I talk with my love. You won't be around me long. And man, your mind immediately goes to Jenna. No. Listen, I I talk with Jenna, but I'm telling you, I talk with my love. Tony loves to hunt. And I talk with it. I can tell you the latest shotgun. I 
I can tell you the latest bird hunting, the latest ducks. I can tell you where the ducks are, where they're going to be, where we're shooting at. I talk with it. Man, I'm constantly talking with my love. If you love Jesus, you'll be talking with Him. Don't just be talking about Him. You talk with your love. And then number two I've learned about Tony is I talk about my love. I mean, you get around me, I'm going to talk about my love. I'm going to tell you about my hunting and my fishing. I'm going to tell you what I love to do. I'm going to talk about my love. Oh, God, may you have priority over my love. Why? Why? That's the question of the day if you're lost. Why? And here's the ultimate answer. Because Jesus Christ is worthy of all of your love. And there's no one else, nothing under the sun, worthy of your love like Jesus Christ. To stand in your place, to receive the guilt and the shame, the punishment, so that you and I can stand as Jesus Christ in front of the Savior at this moment, completely cleaned. He's worthy of our love. Number two, what, what can we learn from Peter's life? His failures? But yet he's forgiven. What can we learn? Number two, man, Peter acts before he speaks. He, he, Peter acts before Jesus answered. He does. He, Peter, Peter acts before Jesus answered. I, I love this in Luke 22. Let me take you back to another moment in Peter's life. Luke 22, verse 49. When those who were around him saw what was fixing to happen, Dr. Allen's going to get to this soon, the arrest of Jesus. When those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, so we, now we know this is the disciple. They said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? So there's the prayer. Lord, what, what do we do? Man, they're about to arrest you. Do we fight? Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And you know what I found intriguing at this passage? Between verse 49 and 50, the Lord doesn't answer the prayer, but Peter responds. Peter takes out his sword and he... now. I will not cut Peter slack here. Peter's good at fishing, but he's bad at fighting. Because if you think Peter is swinging at his ear, you're sadly mistaken. Peter is trying to cut that old boy's head off. And he misses his head and hits his ear. Boy, that's good aim. And what I love about that passage of Scripture is the spiritual principles in it. You know what the only thing Peter did when he acted before Jesus answered? You know the only thing he did? He cut a sinner's ear off. Malchus was no longer going to listen to what Peter had to say. Now Christians, you better hear me well. You act before Jesus answers, and you confuse the gospel for some of your loved ones and friends. They may not ever listen to what you have to say again. Peter's witness to Malchus was done. You cut my ear off, I'm done with you too. Peter cut the ear off of a sinner and it killed his witness for who he was. Guys, you better not move until Jesus answers. That's for me and Jenna, not for you. I'm telling you, there's temptations in our life all the time. I, I share this with Cliff and John and Dr. Allen. and Guys, I'm transparent. I'll share it with my church family. I have people all the time saying, Tony, you have lost your brains. You, you walk away from an established Southern Baptist church, getting to do what you love every Sunday, preaching God's Word to go sit in a pew with nothing? Yes. Does it make sense? No. But God's not about my sense. He's about my holiness. Now, guys, you cut a sinner's ear off. You're on the road to failure. You better walk cautiously and carefully until you hear clearly what the Lord has to say. Man, i got to go. Number three, Peter followed at a distance when things begin to heat up. Peter followed at a distance when things begin to heat up. So, men, there's three primary failures. He's talking about Jesus more than talking with Jesus. He's acting before Jesus is answering. And he's following at a distance when things heats up, when he should be in the shepherd's hip pocket. I'll take you back to another story here. In Matthew 26, as a matter of fact, 
Guys, one thing you'll notice in the synoptic gospels, and matter of fact, in all four gospels, when the same thing is mentioned in all four of them, we'd better pay attention. This is mentioned in all four gospel accounts. I'll read all of them quickly, and they may even be on the screen. Matthew 26, verse 58. Peter, following at a distance, as he entered the courtyard of the high priest, going inside, he sat down at the guards to see the end. Mark 14 even records it, verse 54. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right in the courtyard of the high priest. Luke 22 says the same thing. And they seized him and led him away, bring him in the high priest. And Peter was following at a distance. John 18 says the same thing. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did the other disciples since the disciple was known to the high priest and he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So all four accounts, we get this picture that Peter is following Jesus at a distance. Now don't stick so to the physical side of this. Look at the spiritual implications. We know because of his denial, what's in Peter's heart is I don't want to be found too close to Jesus because they may think I'm one of him and they're going to kill me. There's the spiritual implication. In his heart, he is far from Jesus. In his heart, I just want to be just close enough to be called a Christian, but I don't want to be so close that I may get recognized as being one of them. You with me? I, I just want to follow. Now, I love this word in 2022 in America. I, I want to be a convenient Christian. Just convenient Christianity. When it doesn't cost me anything, when, I, when I'm not anything's at stake, as long as the church doesn't talk about me giving my money, as long as I don't have to sacrifice anything, as long as this thing is convenient for me, I, then I'll be a Christian. But when things begin to heat up, Peter begins to back off. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you what we're going to see in America. I don't claim to be a prophet. I'm far from it, not a son of the prophet. This is just scriptures. And if you have any age on you at all, watching things around you is unfolding before our eyes. Things are heating up and Christians are fleeing. It's the bottom line. Now, you better hear me well. God always has a remnant. And when things heats up, it's not time to follow at a distance. It's time to get in the hip pocket. Stay close to the shepherd. Stay close to the shepherd. One of the, the, uh, the interpretations of Psalm 23, verse 4 and 5. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you aren't with me. Pastors just butcher that. We use it at weddings. I mean, at funerals. They're about the same. Cliff, can I stay with you tonight? (laughs) We use them at... Now y'all are awake now. We use them at funerals because we think when David says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, we think that has something to do with death. That's an old shepherd boy trying to lead some sheep through some mountains. It ain't nothing to do with death if ain't is a word in Boniface. Here's a proper interpretation of that verse. Even though I walk through the deepest, darkest seasons of my life, I won't fear anything those seasons can bring me. And the reason that's a proper interpretation is because David is leading sheep through the valleys who had just come off the mountaintop. And now they're going down in the valley where it's very dangerous. And David says, even though I walk through the deepest, darkest valleys that these mountains can ever bring me, I'm not scared. Now, guys, I'm going to tell you, even though you and I walk and will walk through the deepest, darkest valleys this world can bring us, when we understand the sovereign hand of God, you will fear no evil because you got a God who is sovereign over evil. Sovereign over it. And if you don't think He's sovereign over it, Genesis 50-20 is your verse today. In my Bible reading, I'm reading through the... Uh, the Bible chronologically, and I'm in Genesis 50, and I read just yesterday morning that uh, in Genesis 50, 20, Joseph's brothers has come. Joseph's brothers on their knees, they're squalling and crying because they tried to kill the old boy and couldn't, and now they're standing before him and bowed before him, and Joseph says, guys, get up. There's no need in crying. What you meant for evil against me, God's made for my good. 
Now, guys, I don't know if you're facing cancer. I don't know if you're facing job loss. I don't know what you're facing. But I'm telling you, if you'll surrender your life to Jesus in the middle of your failure and receive the forgiveness He offers, it'll be to your good and His glory because you've got a sovereign God who's sovereign over evil. Seek first the righteousness of God and all of these things will be added to you. So here's my... Second, third principle, because my time's up with you today. Here's what the third thing I've learned about Tony. And I've made it universal. Anybody, anybody is capable of anything the moment you take your eyes off Jesus. Man, I'm telling you, I've took my eyes off Jesus. And I've begun to love ministry more than Jesus, love preaching more than Jesus, love your job more than Jesus, love your family more than Jesus. And you get on the other side of that thing and you go, holy cow, how in the world did I get here? How many of us can testify that sin will always take us deeper than we ever intended to go? Keep us longer than we ever intended to stay? And bless God, cost us more than we ever intended to pay. That's sin for you. And I am capable of doing anything the moment... The moment I take my eyes off Jesus, I'm going to give you one last illustration. Probably won't mean a hill of beans to you, but it means a lot to me. When I was pastoring my first church at First Baptist Columbia, I ordained my first deacon. And man, I was going to do everything right. I met with the deacon and his wife, and man, I tried everything I could do and encourage them. But if you know me any at all, I'm going to spend more time warning you than I do encouraging you. So I'm sitting there and I'm talking to her and I'm warning them every way I can warn them. And uh, tell him, look, you take your eyes off Jesus. I know y'all are sitting here. Y'all are in holy matrimony. Y'all love each other. Man, it's one of the closest marital families I know. I'm, I'm telling you, uh, you're telling me you'll never divorce. And, and I'm telling those guys, you better quit telling me what you'll never do. You take your eyes off Jesus and you'll find yourself somewhere doing things that you thought you'd never do. I hear pastors that make their two loved ones sign creeds, you'll never divorce, I don't do any of that. You take your eyes off Jesus, your family will crumble. I'm sitting there before uh, two, uh, a young deacon and his wife, and, and we're talking, and boy, they're telling me all these things they won't do and never do, and I get a call about two and a half years later. The young deacon is weeping on the other end of the phone. And he said, Tony, you, you told us when you met with you in the upstairs of your office, that if we ever considered divorce, that we had to come and talk to you first and said, we want to honor that. We're going to give you an hour. And if things don't change, we're getting divorced next week. You see, I told them that you got a bullseye on your forehead and Satan is coming. And he seeks to destroy the marriage. You know why I think Satan seeks to destroy the marriage? Because kingdom families build kingdom churches. Destroy the marriage, destroy the church. You with me? I've been pastoring long enough to see one family and family problems comes into the church. And anybody else want to finish that? And me and him begin to meet. And I begin to ask him some questions. And he begins to weep with me. And this is what he said. He said, Tony, I can take you back to the day. I took my eyes off Jesus. Anybody is capable of anything the moment you take your eyes off Jesus. Guys, here's how I want to close. I want to close very practical with you. And I want to close with number two in your handout. So I want to let you set that hand out to the side. You can fill this in later. Go back and watch it. Fill your notes in. But number two is actually the conclusion. So I don't know who's playing the invitation. Guys, you can, you can come up. I just want you to play something soft. I'm going to do something that I love being out of the norm. I love it. Guys, I just want you to sit there alone with Jesus, with your head bowed and eyes closed. Boyfriends, girlfriends, I know it's very hard to separate yourself from the one you love, but get you some distance in between you. And I want to talk to you just for a moment. Every head bowed and every eye closed. 
Tony, if, if Jesus is worthy of my life, He's worthy of all of my worship. I want to ask you a question. I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want to pray with you. That, that is all the intent of this, of, this, of, this, of this altar here. That is all the intent is to, for Brother Tony to pray for you. You see, I've been there. I'm more like Peter than I am like Jesus. And the first question on that handout says, Do I love Jesus more than anything else? So I'm sitting around a campfire there with Peter and the disciples, and Jesus says, Tony, do you agape me? Not, not just affections. Tony, do you love me more than your family? More than your job? More than Grace Church? Would you be willing to move and to plant somewhere if God uproots me? I don't know, would you? Do I, do I love Jesus more than anything? And I'm going to tell you, Tony oftentimes does not. So I, I'm telling you, my, my hand is up. But guys, if, if God has convicted your heart that there's something in the way of your agape, full, committed, surrendered love to Him, just slip your hand up. I'm telling you, mine's up. God's already pressed something into my heart that I love more than I do Jesus. Keep them up. I'm going to pray for you. This is not to embarrass you. This is because... This is because your joy and contentment in life is directly proportionate to how close you walk with Him. And I'm telling you, i got to get that out of my heart. Father, in the name of Jesus, God, we know that You are worthy of all of our worship. God, You don't sit before us having fixing to go to the cross. God, You sit before us King of kings and Lord of lords sovereign ruler over all. There's no sin in us too great to where you're still nailed to the cross. But God, I don't know what they did to the cross when they took your body off, but God, it's gone and it's done. It's done away with. We're left with an empty tomb. You're sovereign over all of our sins. So Father, God, Tony thinks, Tony thinks Sometimes that his comfort, Tony thinks that he knows what he needs and his safety and his convenience and his fishing and his hunting. God, Tony thinks that is, is, is what he loves the most. But Father, he knows better. You're worthy of my mind. You're worthy of my heart. You're worthy of all of our worship. So, Father, I pray, God, specifically for my brothers and sisters. God, if you have already spoke to, as they make that chair an altar, God, they leave that love there for you to continue to develop and create a love in their heart that's pure, that's undefiled, that's like Jesus, because you're worthy. You're worthy of all of our worship, and so much more. Question number two, still with every head bowed and every eye closed, is Satan's number one goal in a Christian's life is just get you to be quiet. Just not, just not tell anybody about Jesus. And, and, the, and the way he does that is create doubt in our hearts. Guys, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I stand here, a man of God, preaching His Word. And if I told you I'd never doubted my relationship with Jesus, I'd be lying to you. Now, I know I don't follow Jesus only for heaven, but bless God, I know I'm dying. If you were standing in front of Jesus today, Are you certain that you're walking close and going to go to heaven when you die? If not, and the Lord's calling you, I understand no man comes unless the Spirit draws, but I know the Spirit draws. If there's doubt in your heart, just slip your hand up. 
If you would be willing to say, Pastor Tony, I don't know. And you want me to pray for you. Guys, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm going I'm to do that. I'm going to pray for you. Father, God, there's hands all over this room. And God, I'm sure there's doubt in Peter's heart as he sat around that campfire. Because God, you hit him in his heart. His mouth and his feet wasn't going together. Father, I pray, Lord, for these specifically, God, that as you continue to draw them and move in their hearts to to relationship with you, Father, I pray by, by your grace, God, that you would manifest yourself to them, that there's more grace in you than sin in them, That the cross is sufficient for all failures. The cross is sufficient for all my shame and guilt. That I can be used by you in spite of who I am. So Father, would you work in their hearts? God, would we realize that salvation only comes from Christ? Father, how cool it would be as you drawing to salvation, one to surrender their life to you today. And Father, I would pray that you would bound Satan because he has no place in this room. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. God, may we respond to what you're doing in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, I'm here for you. Let's stand together.